0: I'll stand in honor of God's glorious word. <clears throat> We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 11, going to verse 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf.
1: Well, amen. You guys may be seated. Amen. Well, this section of Scripture, I'm actually taking in two parts. So today, my focus is going to be going through verses 11 and 13. uh, But I just wanted us to read the entire context together. Uh, Let's pray, and uh, we'll begin. Let's pray together. Father, again, Lord, we are grateful uh, for your word. We do want to treasure it, God, and we pray that you would illuminate our hearts today, that you would uh, revive us according to your word, just like the psalmist declares. Revive us, Lord, because we need reviving, Lord. Encourage our hearts today in your word, Lord. Give life to our souls today, God, through your word and cause us to know you in a deeper and better way, God. Help us to appreciate all that your word declares. And we're so grateful, Lord, for the, the whole uh, counsel of God today. We're so grateful, Lord, for everything that your word declares. Uh, Lord, whether in season or out of season, whether it's convenient or not convenient, Lord, help us to cherish your word. Help us to love all of its parts all of its truths, help us to revel and relish in the revelation that you have given us in the holy scriptures. Father, I pray for your people today that, uh, Lord, you would grant us understanding. I pray for your people today that you would grant us ears to hear. Help us to hear, Lord, what your word is saying. Help us to be quick to apply truth to our lives and not to hesitate, Lord, uh, regarding your truth. Help us not to hesitate regarding the application of your truth, but help us to be those who are sensitive to the spirit of the living God and knowing where and how we are to apply this to our hearts. Lord, thank you. We bless your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, well, I just begun uh, reading uh, the massive two-volume uh, work of Arnold Dallamer, his biography of George Whitfield. And uh, it's kind of daunting because two big books, you know, just about one man. <laughs> and, uh, but I just have undertaken to, to read that because I'm fascinated by George Whitfield. Uh, as you know, I love to do open-air preaching. Whitfield was an open-air preaching. I don't think I'll ever be an open-air preacher like Whitfield, but I want to learn from the best. And so I've just started reading that, that wonderful, wonderful book. And the amazing thing that captured me was I came across a familiar quote at the end of the introduction of Dollimer's book. Arnold Dollimer was writing, oh, about uh uh I don't know, several decades ago. Uh he he really was writing in the early earlier part of the 20th century. But after looking at Whitfield's life, his whole, spanning the whole uh, panoply of his works and his life and his ministry, all of his open air preaching, all his evangelism and his sermon, it left him with this impression that what Dolomer was looking for in future years was for God to raise up other preachers like what he found in the life of Whitfield. And I want to read you something that he said. This is what he was yearning for that God would one day do this. He says, Yea, that we shall see the great head of the church once more bring into being a special instrument of revival, that he will again raise up unto himself certain young men whom he will use in this glorious employ. And what manner of men will they be? Men mighty in the scriptures. Their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness and the majesty and the holiness of God. And in their minds and their hearts, aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. They will be men who have learned what it is to die to self, to human aims and to personal ambitions. Men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake. "...who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain the earth's accolades, but to win the master's approbation when they appear before his awesome judgment seat." They will be men who will preach with broken hearts and with tear-filled eyes and upon whose ministries God will grant an extraordinary effusion of the Holy Spirit and who will witness signs and wonders following in the transformation of multitudes of human lives. I thought, wow, that was so well put and Certainly, if Whitfield was that type of a preacher, the Apostle Paul, even more so, was that type of, that type of a preacher. Fool, willing to be fools for Christ's sake. Willing to bear reproach and falsehood. To labor and to suffer. And whose only desire is to win the Master's approbation. His approval before His great judgment seat. And we just looked at that in this text right here And so what I want to look at today is uh, in the reality that Paul is talking about here and everything that he's led up to this point. You remember back in verse 10 of chapter 5... The Apostle Paul left us with an incredible impression of the great judgment seat of Christ and what that would mean. Let me read it to you again. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so with that knowledge, with that reverence, with that fear, with that awe, That understanding that one day Paul would stand before God's great judgment, before Christ's bema seat of judgment. Literally, the Apostle Paul begins to give now various qualities that distinguishes his ministry to the church. And there are three that I want to capitalize on, fear, reputation, and concern. The first one is fear. Paul is really resuming a whole section dealing with the quality of his ministry. You remember that the the book of Second Corinthians largely has to do with Paul's ministry being undermined and second-guessed, and so much of the of the book is dedicated to defending his apostleship, to defending his authority, to defending his ministry, his preaching, his manner, his method, his motives the whole gamut of ministry. That's why 2 Corinthians is so precious for ministers, for pastors, for anyone who wants to know the nature of true ministry. And here we are looking at the nature of true ministry. We've seen already in the apostle Paul a grand, the grand scope of his ministry, that Paul was authoritative as an apostle, that he was compassionate with the church, that he was trustworthy, chapter 1, verse 12, that he was not capricious, that he was not double-minded, verse 17 of chapter 1. And he goes on to talk about how glorious his ministry was in chapter 3 as a new covenant minister. And here then he resumes talking about the ministry. And then notice how he is motivated to proceed. Verse 11, he says, "'Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men.'" Knowing the fear of the Lord. See, that was what dominated Paul's mind, his mentality, his perspective in the ministry was not so much trying to fear man or the fear of man or trying to be a man pleaser, but first and foremost, Paul's desire was rooted in a fear of God, a healthy fear of God. And boy, I tell you, right now we live in a society where the fear of God is almost uh, to some people speaks of spiritual abuse of some sort. You start talking about the fear of God and people will warn you, oh, don't talk about that. It's much easier to talk to people about the love of God. Why would you want to scare people away with the fear of God after all? Don't you know that the love of God is much easier to swallow? Don't you know that the love of God is much easier to hear? Why, are you, why would you scare anybody, anybody away with the fear of God? And the reason why, of course, is because God is to be feared. There is no way around it. As a matter of fact, the great Puritan Thomas Adams, he said, No man more truly loves God than he that is most fearful to offend him. See, it's the fear of God that produces holiness. It's the fear of God that produces holiness in his ministers. And Scripture everywhere teaches that the fear of the Lord is exactly what Psalm 119 declares. The fear of the Lord is pure. It is clean fear. It is not the fear of a monster. It is not the fear of a vindictive, malicious, cosmic monster of some sort, but it's the fear of a God who is so brilliantly holy. It is the fear of a God who is so infinitely righteous, before whom we in our own righteousness can never survive. We would never make it. We would never be able to stand before him the fear of the lord brothers and sisters is clean it's pure according to scripture the fear of god is a strong confidence for the godly proverbs 14:26 in proverbs 14:27 it says the fear of the lord is a fountain of life and it keeps one from the snares of death when israel or rather judah was going astray Uh, actually Israel, yes, when Israel was going astray, uh, Isaiah warned them with the fear of God, and he he tried to convince them that, that it was good to fear God because the fear of God would lead to the blessing of God. It would lead to the treasures of God's covenant blessings. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, and He will be a stability for your times, God a wealth of salvation wisdom and knowledge he says the fear of the lord is his treasure i like that the fear of the lord is god's treasure for his people that in is in other words what they are to value that is what they are to prize that is what they ought to esteem they ought to fear god yes they ought to fear god that god is able to judge that god is able to cast into hell always surprises me when people tell me, don't talk about the fear of God. You'll just turn people away, don't you see? Uh, Just the other night, I saw a video with uh, Todd Friel uh, doing some witnessing out somewhere. I don't know, he was out there somewhere. And there was a Christian, a a girl claimed to be a Christian, and she came up to a microphone that he had set up there. And with tears, she started crying and weeping, begging Todd to stop telling people to repent. To stop telling people about the judgment of God because you're pushing them away from Jesus. But you see, my dear friends, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge. It's where sinners will be will become instructed as to how they can gain eternal life. It's the fear of the Lord. And sure, it is terrifying. It is terrifying. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, don't fear man who can kill your body and, do, and then do nothing to you. He says, I will tell you who to fear. Fear him who has the power, the ability to not only kill your body, but then cast your body and your soul into hell. Truly, I tell you, fear him. That has to be one of the most politically incorrect verses in all of the Bible. But it is what Jesus said. Therefore, we are not ashamed of the commandments of our Lord. It is wisdom, dear brothers and sisters. But listen, the fear that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is even more specific than that. You remember verse verse 10 is talking specifically, specifically about the fear that he has in bringing any sort of displeasure to God in the ministry. That he would somehow fail as a pastor. That he would somehow fail in his duties to execute the ministry, to preach Christ fully. And therefore, he says, rooted in this fear he moves on to persuade men. And so I'm taking that language there, persuading men as language about Paul's preaching ministry. This is what motivated him. This is how he persuaded men, knowing that he had a great accountability before God. And so he would never compromise the message. These folks, churches, pastors, people all over who are looking for alternative ways to reach the sinner by concealing and hiding the fear of God from them, are going to have their works burn up like chaff because it's not the way that God meant it to be. Because when you don't reveal the fear of God, when you don't tell people about the fear of the Lord, that means that you don't fear the Lord because you won't do what He says. You're ashamed of him. Jesus said, blessed is the man that is not ashamed of my words. Amen. Blessed is he who does not stumble at my words, who doesn't take offense at me, Jesus would say. And so for the Apostle Paul, I think it's obvious, but it should be noted that for the Apostle Paul, fear did not paralyze him. You see that? He had a fear of God, but the fear of God that he had moved him to action. It moved him to persuade people. It moved him to persuade men, to beseech men, to preach to men, to engage in the ministry of the gospel. I like what Sinclair Ferguson said in his little book, Grow in Grace. He said, the fear of the Lord tends to take away all other fears. This is the secret of Christian courage and boldness. That's right. Because if we fear God more than we fear man, we will not be afraid to warn man. We will not be afraid to persuade men. And what is this persuasion about? This is now the the content, we could say, of his persuasion. Well, the persuasion he's talking about is the, the preaching of the gospel, persuading men with the gospel. And of course, to see this, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But you can find this word to persuade, this Greek word is patho, which you can find it throughout the book of Acts, talking about the preaching ministry of the Apostle Paul and how that he went here and he went there. He went to the synagogue. He went to Athens. He went all over the place persuading people. And how did he persuade them? He persuaded them in this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, a very familiar passage. But it's interesting because Not only was it Paul's aim to persuade men with preaching Christ, but to preach Christ to the exclusion of anything else so that nothing else could be that foundation upon which our faith would rest. Look at this. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. You see, because in Corinth in that day... Oratory ability, uh, 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 eloquent rhetoric, was something that people in public would pride themselves on. To have fanciful oratory skills as they laid out perhaps their philosophy. But for Paul, he wasn't interested in being eloquent in that way. He wasn't interested in sounding philosophical according to the world's wisdom, But he says this, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That does not mean, by the way, that the Apostle Paul simply got up week after week or went into the town square or as Acts chapter 17 says, he was in the marketplace daily and all that he did was repeat over and over, Christ crucified, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. He's saying in a a kernel form, in a sort of summary fashion, he's saying that the whole entire message that he preached had to do with the message of who Jesus was, what he did, what he taught. It was a full-orbed theological presentation of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts, the doctrine that dominates that is the doctrine of the resurrection, constantly belaboring. Acts chapter 9, arguing, debating with the Jews, it says, convincing them that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, for the Apostle Paul, Jesus was what defined everything. Everything was now determined around the Messiah for Paul. It was all about Him. And so He was the the heart of His message. Verse 3, He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And there I take it to mean that He came accompanied with the signs of an apostle doing signs and wonders. He says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And Romans chapter 1, verse 16 tells us, the gospel is the power of God. When you say, well, I can't do miracles today, don't worry. The gospel is the power of God. See, well, I can't raise anybody from the dead. I can't do the types of miracles the apostles were doing. But one thing you can do which was at the very heart of what they did, was to preach Christ crucified just like they did. Now, he also brings in another aspect, another uh, qualifier, if you would, to this persuasion, the transparency of his persuasion, we could say, because he says, we are made manifest to God. You see that? It's actually a twofold type of persuasion. He says, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also to, in your consciences. You see, that. So the first thing he wants them to know is that his preaching was manifest to God. The perfect tense verb that he uses here says or basically teaches that this manifestation, the word to manifest, meant that his ministry was revealed. It was visible. It was open and naked and bare before him with whom he has to do. His ministry was known to God. He knew that he was preaching, as he says in chapter 2, verse 17, in the sight of God. Chapter 4, verse 2, in the sight of God. He knew that he was preaching in God's sight and that God knew the nature of his ministry. He knew that it was all open. It was exposed. It was fully transparent before the Lord. He was, if you look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, remember, he rejected hidden and shameful things. He rejected, ultimately, the adulterating of the Word of God. See, this becomes very important, as we'll see, because Paul has opponents in Corinth, like he had opponents everywhere. It seemed like Paul had adversaries everywhere, just like he says in 1 Corinthians, there are many adversaries. Everywhere he went, he faced opposition, and um, what a great, cur- what, a, what an encouraging thing for us, right? That you will not do biblical ministry without opposition. It just will never happen. <laughs> You'll never have a, a ministry on easy street. You're always going to have problems. You're always going to have detractors. You're always going to have uh, a people that come and try to undermine biblical forms of preaching. Now, the effects that it had in his life... In the present life, not only did he have an eye to the great judgment of God and what that meant for him, but also in the present, it kept him pressing into the things that he was already doing, knowing that his ministry was manifested before God did not cause him to go anywhere else, didn't cause him to change his method or his message in any way, but it caused him to press in, to go, to keep going in the direction of truth, in the direction of orthodoxy, apostolicity. He wanted to go to get even more and more Christ-centered, gospel-centered, God-centered, Bible-centered. That's where the apostle was headed. And guess what? He tells Timothy, his young protege, the same thing, that this is what you do in the ministry, Timothy. You keep going deeper and deeper into the things that you already know into the truth that you've already been convinced of. The further you go into the ministry does not mean the more you start searching for alternative ways to do ministry. The further you go into ministry doesn't mean look for alternative ways to present the message. No, it means the further and deeper you go, just the more solidified you should be in your conviction. Uh, let me read to you Second Timothy uh, chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, actually the passage I preached at the Psalm 119 conference. We have, we have some visitors from there. Um, beginning in verse 12, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And verse 14 is key. He says, You, however, Timothy, you, however, as opposed to them, you're different than them. Be different than them. He says, continue in the things that you've learned and you've become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. The Greek word there is graphe, which really should be translated scripture, the sacred scriptures which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I mean, what other writings are going to give you that wisdom that leads to salvation but the Scriptures? So Paul is also very eager to say that he had a transparent ministry, but he wants them to know that. He's not just manifest. Look at the text back in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, he says, "I." He says, not only is he made manifest to God, but also, watch this, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Oh, in the deepest level of your witness, of your testimony, that inward confirmation and conviction that God has given you, that there you would know that Paul's ministry was integrous that it was sound, as he's going to go on to say, sound, healthy, right, orthodox, apostolic in every way. So he wants them to know that. He wants the church to see his manner, his motive, his purpose. So it's all about edifying the church. This was probably so hurtful for Paul, right? Here's a minister who's trying to get the church to understand the true nature of his motives before God and before the church, and constantly having to suffer being undermined by the church. Uh, As a matter of fact, he touches on this later in the book, 2 Corinthians 12, 19. He says this. uh, Chapter 12 is another section where Paul resumes defending his ministry. And he says, all this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. You see that? And all for your upbuilding, the word edification, beloved. Isn't that an amazing text? He's saying, you think that what motivates me is that I'm trying to defend myself before you. He's saying, no, 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 no. You have to understand that the deep, at the very bottom of my heart, The motive is that we speak in the sight of God, in Christ. And we've looked at that sort of phraseology before. In the sight of God, meaning we're accountable to God. In God's presence, knowing the fear of the Lord, just like our text here says. In Christ means in the authority of Christ. In Christ's authority that He gave them to be apostles, which of course began by their personal union with Christ. But He says it's all for one reason. It's for your upbuilding. It's for your edification, and then he ends it with the 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 the, um, the the term of endearment, beloved. See, he loves them. He's not trying to pull wool over their heads. He's not trying to deceive them. He wants them to see it. He says, "I hope that we are made manifest in your consciences." And that is a serious desire, by the way. Paul is saying, look, exactly the way that God sees us, we want you to see us. We're manifest to God, and now our prayer, our heart is that we would be manifest to you as well. You see what, fear, what the fear of the Lord produces. It produces integrity. It produces um, a, 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 just a love for the church. It produces the right motives. It produces the right motives. The second thing, though, that it produces is a godly reputation. A true ministry before God will result in a godly reputation. Look at verse 12. He says, we're not again commending ourselves to you, but we are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. That's amazing. So, here, Paul sort of begins by giving a sort of a quick qualification, which, by the way, just in terms of ministry principles, this is kind of an obvious one, but an important one, that Paul would qualify his statements, clarify himself. There's nothing worse in the ministry than being misunderstood. Trust me, I've been there many times. But I thought you meant, no, I didn't mean that, you know. But I thought that when you said in Sunday school, you meant no, let me explain to you what I meant, right? I wasn't uh, speaking against the Trinity, (laughs) obviously, right? I I had somebody um, tell me that once when I was teaching a class that I mentioned something about money and they thought, well, we thought you guys were getting ready to go buy a million dollar building. I said, based on that statement that I made in Sunday school, it took me 10 seconds. You thought I was committing to a million dollar note? Now, let me clarify what I said. <laughs> I wasn't talking about taking the church into debt, but you see how easy it is to be misunderstood. And so the Apostle Paul, always wanting to clarify himself. I mean, it's one thing to die the death of a thousand qualifications, right? If you're always having to clarify what you mean and what you say, and you're, you, know, you can't make up your mind what you meant and what you were saying, well, that's a problem, and you're going to have a really hard time in ministry. But it is also another thing that we should qualify what we say. We shouldn't be afraid to clear up any misunderstandings. And the reason that Paul does this is he's saying, I'm actually giving you, it's actually not for ourselves. See, they thought, remember earlier in chapter three, he was saying, look, we're not concerned with letters of commendation. We're not concerned with getting people to write letters saying, yeah, Paul's a good guy. He's a good apostle. He's a good minister. You can trust him. That is not where his integrity came from. His integrity was before the Lord. And so in a similar way, Paul's saying, look, it is not that we're commending ourselves. We're actually providing for you an occasion to be proud of us. The word literally means to boast, to boast. He's saying, we are giving you the platform upon which you can boast to who? He says, so that you will be able to answer, this is what the boasting is for, you will, you'll be able to answer or to reply, it's an interesting way that he phrases this, for those who take pride, see the play on words there between his, what, what the pride he's concerned with and the pride that these people are concerned with. He's concerned for the church. That's where where he wants to see pride and boasting, is in the church for the right reasons. But he's saying these folks, those who take pride in what? Appearance and not in heart. Apparently, these these opponents of the Apostle Paul were concerned first and foremost with external appearance, with a show, with religiosity, whatever it might have been. They were concerned first and foremost for people to see their spirituality, to see some kind of external show, display of spirituality. And he says, as a matter of fact, they're not even concerned about the heart. You see the word heart there? That's really interesting because what does it mean in this context? They don't take pride in heart, he says. Well, I think that the the word heart is functioning something like the term character or the term uh, uh, godliness or character or or you know trying to find out what what do they really care about they don 't care about this stuff going on in the heart policy paul, paul cares about the conscience they don 't that 's a big problem they care about appearance, which is really fascinating, and so these who I think are the same persons that you find back in chapter 2, verse 17. It was those who were peddling the Word of God, the same people that you find in chapter 4. It was those who were adulterating the Word of God, and then here you see the logical connection. If you're not concerned about sound doctrine, guess what? You probably won't be concerned about sound living either. If you don't have sound doctrine and you don't care about sound doctrine, then you probably don't have godly living either. One will follow the other. Your beliefs, your theology will, by necessity, affect how you live. Your orthodoxy will affect your practice. It will affect what goes on in your life. And so Paul is very zealous to say that he does care about heart. He does care about character. It was Calvin who said, wherever there is empty show... There is no sincerity, and there is no integrity of heart. That's exactly what Paul is concerned with here. Now quickly, let me just go back to the... Let's, let's go to the third thing, that a true ministry will be concerned for the edification of the church, and it will also suffer ridicule by others. Look at verse 13. That's the way I'm taking this. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of a sound mind, it is for you. A very difficult text. Um, all the commentators just went haywire on me. You know, it's one thing when you're studying the Bible and the commentators are all agreeing with each other, just kind of complimenting each other. That's great. But then you get to a passage like this and they just all poof, they just all become enemies all of a sudden. You're trying to pick sides in your desk there. Am I going to go with MacArthur? Am I going to go with Harris? Am I going to go with NIC, Pillar Commentary? Where am I going? because all these guys know the Bible better than I do, so I hope that one of them will be able to persuade me. Well, the reason I said you'll have a concern for the edification of the church and you will suffer ridicule is because, I think that's what that word is referring to, when he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Now, what I... I don't agree with is the interpretation that what Paul is saying here is that being beside yourself meant something like speaking in tongues or engaged in charismatic activity of some sort, some sort of ecstatic state of mind, and that's what's to God. I just don't think that fits the context very well here. The word is an interesting word because everywhere else in the New Testament, it always speaks of something other than the context that we have here. It talks about being amazed or being astonished. Well, Paul is not talking about being astonished here or amazed. So it boils down to two different things. Either he's talking about being beside himself because of some sort of ecstatic experience that he had in the Spirit, like speaking in tongues or prophesying or something. Well, actually, those that side with that view would actually say, not prophesying because prophesying is part of intelligible speech, okay? So that's kind of the view there. However, the Greek word is existeme. and that word literally means to be out of your senses, to be out of your mind. That's what it means. And the only other place we find this in the whole New Testament in a similar context is in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, when the people deemed that Jesus was out of his mind, that he was, and then the Pharisees went on to say, he's actually demon-possessed. And so I think the context is more that Paul is saying look he's willing to suffer as a fool and he's been taken as a fool many times Festus thought that he was mad you remember in 1 Corinthians he labels himself a willing fool for Christ and uh, just to show you kind of a close parallel 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 9 to 13 is a kind of a close parallel to this I think he says in beginning in uh, Verse 9, this is 1 Corinthians 4, 9. He says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. So in other words, he's saying, look, the more we are suffering, the more you're being edified. And I think that's the same thing that's going on here. The more that Paul is being taken for as a fool, the more that his soundness, if you would, would will redound to the edification of the church. But we'll get there. He also goes on to say this. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our hands. We are reviled. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even till now. I don't remember the last time that any minister described his ministry to me that way. You know, what's up with your ministry right now? What's going on, brother? Oh, you know what? We're the scum of the earth. We're the dregs of all things. Hallelujah. Our ministry's going great. <laughs> but the Apostle Paul was so derided. And I think what's going on here, I think, is that by his opponents, he is being accused of being out of his senses. And if he's saying, if that's the case, it is. God. Literally, the word just simply says to God. So I take that grammatically uh, for all of you gr- grammarians out there as a date of advantage some sort, some sort of advantage unto God. It results, according to many commentators, to the glory of God that the Apostle Paul should be considered a fool out of his mind, out of his senses. So it's almost like a play on words as well. The deeper you go, the broader the options become. But uh, Again, Paul is ultimately concerned with the church. He says this before. His concern for the purity of the church is so, is so obvious. It's all over the pages of Scripture. First and foremost, Paul was a church man. He loved the church. He was so committed to the church. It's convicting. He says in 2 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, For I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. See, there were some that were taking him for a fool. And verse 2 says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Actually, in verse 1, when he says foolishness, he's comparing their foolishness to him stepping out and, in a sense, partaking or or answering a fool according to their folly as they deserve by going on about his own uh, revelations and things. He says, I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And so the last thing that I want to say is not only was Paul willing to be a fool for Christ, uh, and and if it is talking about charismatic phenomenon, then what Paul is saying is that, look, if I do engage in charismatic phenomena, that is to God. In other words, saying that is private See, but I don't know how, that, how well that goes with 1 uh, Corinthians because in 1 Corinthians, the charismatic phenomenons are supposed to go on in front of the church, and they're supposed to be for the edification of the church, not so much in private. But it's a, it's a difficult and debatable passage. But one thing is for sure is that his sanity was for the good of the church. That's another really interesting thing. The next word he uses is literally to think with wisdom. That's the word, safroneo, to think with wisdom. So I say they were were taking him to be mad, to be thinking without wisdom. And he says, look, if that's the way that we are to be taken, then it will be to the glory of God. But if we are sound mind, sound wisdom, then it is for you. In other words, it is for your advantage again. It's so amazing. But that all of these things should, for us, really spell out what a true and biblical ministry should look like. A true and biblical ministry should produce... Confident evangelists who persuade God out of a fear of God. It should also produce cross-centered and selfless ministers who seek above everything to be pleasing to God for the glory of God and will gladly suffer ridicule for the glory of God and for the good of the church and so that their ultimate ambition, their ultimate aim is the edification of the church the upbuilding of the church the equipping of the church after all Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says that's the reason why God gave us ministers in the first place evangelists pastors teachers is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry and so i think that's what paul is doing here he's also he's also in a sense doing what dolomer Talks about in Whitfield's biography. There'll be those who will be willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, whose supreme desire will not be to grow a big church, will not be to have a fancy building, will not be to excel in the latest technology. But it will be not for the earth's accolades, but only to win the master's approbation. And I tell you what, the older the minister gets, the more this should be true. The closer you get to the great and awful and terrible judgment seat of Christ, the more and more it should be your singular passion, your singular focus to appear pleasing to him. Because at that point, nobody else's judgment's going to matter it's not going to matter how many books you sold. It's not going to matter how many people bought your sermons or your material or how much or how famous you got in the evangelical church. That's going to be sinking sand. The only thing that's going to matter is was I pleasing to my master? Did I gain his approbation and his approval in the life that I lived and in the ministry that I conducted? It's a high calling. Beware, dear brothers, those of you who want, want ministry, want to preach, want to engage in pastoral ministry or ministry of any kind. It comes with a high price. It comes with great cost. It comes with great accountability, fear, and trembling. It is not this glorious, romanticist, you know, type of ministry that people paint. It oftentimes is accompanied with great fear and trembling because you want to be pleasing to God. You want to know that the things you're doing is pleasing to God. You want to know that the things that you're doing right now on the day of judgment will not burn like chaff. You want to pray and hope and you labor in such a way that your works will endure on into eternal reward. Let's pray. Father, not just for ministers, but for every Christian, the Apostle Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And Lord, let that grip us. And like the Apostle Paul said, let that purify us. Let that produce in us a ministry that is cognizant of the fact that God sees everything and knows everything that it is before you. And let it also drive us to do what we do with integrity, to be men and women of integrity, men and women of our word. They keep our word that if we say we're going to do something, we do it because we care about principle. We want to live a principled life. Oh, God, please forbid that any member of Heritage Grace would live a laxed and lazy and irresponsible life that doesn't result in the glory of God. But Lord, help us to take ownership of our lives. Help us to take ownership of our ministries, whatever sphere of ministry we're in, whether we're at home with children, whether we're dedicated to the workplace, whether we're in the ministry, whether we're, whether we're studying your word to become a scholar, whether we simply want to be an encouragement to other people. May you permeate every area of heritage grace ministry for the glory of God. And let it redound to your glory, God, not to our glory, not to us, O oh Lord, as the psalmist declares, but to you alone be the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I wanted to leave you with a, a, a verse, I think, that captures. Everything that the apostle has been talking about here, First Thessalonians chapter two, beginning in verse one. He says this: "For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you, the gospel of God, in the midst of much opposition." For our exhortation did not come from error or impurity or by deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing man, but God who examines our hearts. Amen.